Well, we have been working on a series about truth and trust this month, and I, when I began that, I began by laying out a, a bit of a case for why truth and trust are perhaps in some trouble. And there's mounting evidence that, actually, I'm standing farther from this than I want to just because it seems like it's buzzing from the, how loud it is. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe other people can't hear me, but it feels like it's, I've got a little more than I want for where I'd like to position myself on the mic. So through June, this series on truth and trust, I started off just trying to lay out a bit of a case for why truth and trust might be in some trouble, why there's a bit of a struggle with this. And I think there's mounting evidence for one thing that Canadians are losing confidence in the systems and structures around us. We're less and less sure that what we see on the news might be true, that our leaders are speaking things to us that are accurate. There's less trust in one another. And that, we talked about making how this makes a commitment to desiring truth and being trustworthy to be very important, as they always should have been to any follower of Jesus. But truth isn't just under external threat. It's, of course, always under internal threat. Human beings are good at lying to themselves, often to excuse or justify our own sinful actions and motivations. It's why the church has long championed self-examination and repentance, which is a tradition that we would do well to reclaim and pass along. Truth is also opposed by harmful myths and lies that come to us from all directions and which many people carry with them. These are lies that tell us that we don't matter, that we're not good enough, that we'll never get it right. And we explored a few of those specifically aimed at men and fathers last Sunday for Father's Day. And as I conclude this series, I want to dig into questions about doubt and wholeness. And I'll walk through the importance of grappling with some of life's big questions. We'll look at the Bible for for some insight about the big question of what does it look like to live well in this world? And then consider the relationship between faith and doubt for a Christian. And that's, that's how we'll end off our Truth and Trust series. So the the Canadian church leadership guru, Kerry Newhoff, recently wrote about a, a big, big study done by Barna Research that asked uh, millennials specifically, so that's people like mid-20s to very early 40s, depending on where you draw those lines, uh, asked them, if though, for those who had kind of given up on church, why that was. And they came up with kind of the top five reasons for why that had happened for many of these people. And the number one reason people listed was uh, the issues around hypocrisy and moral failure. And I've you know, I've lamented some of those a few times from up here. I won't do that one again today, but that was number one. Number two was some people finding that, look, they just really didn't feel like they were finding or experiencing God in their church context for one reason or another. And the third reason that people, these millennials said that they had kind of given up on church attendance was they said legitimate doubt is prohibited. That was the, the phrasing that was used. Legitimate doubt is prohibited. So that not perceiving church as a place where you can actually have honest conversations on hard or complicated questions or where you cannot be in lockstep, perhaps, with what most people think about a certain thing. And that's, that's not great because one of the most important things the church can offer people in our culture is a place to wrestle with big questions, the kinds of questions that you can't necessarily get very good answers to from other sources. Right? I mean, science can tell us a lot of helpful things about the way the natural world works, but it's awfully limited in what it can tell us about how to live well as a human being or how to grapple with suffering or future hope. 
Consumerism is you know, perhaps the main belief system in Canada, and that's of even less help to us because all it can offer us is products, right? Like a vacation, uh, a new medication, a self-help book, maybe a, a mindfulness app for your phone or your smartwatch, which is also the main reason that you would need a mindfulness app in the first place. And because of this, I think a lot of people are really just avoiding the big questions as much as they can. I suspect it's one of the reasons more and more people are choosing not to have funerals or wanting to, wanting to have funerals that are just as upbeat and superficial as they can possibly be. But sooner or later, everyone comes face to face with a big life question. Earlier this week, I was listening to a conversation with a man uh, with you know, possibly the most generic name you can have in the Western world. His name was John Anderson. And this particular John Anderson was a cabinet minister and the deputy prime minister of Australia for a time. And he was talking about some personal history, which was so full of tragedy. And he was saying that he often, he didn't used to talk about this history much, but he was finding that people today, especially younger people, really needed to hear about hard things that others had gone through and what it had, how that had changed their journey. And so he shared about how his, his mother had passed away when he was quite young, and because they lived in very rural Australia, he'd spent a lot of time in boarding school, just kind of going home to be with his father through you know, holidays and, and Christmas and summers and things. And one of the ways he connected most with his father was through sports. So one day he and his father were practicing cricket and he, uh, he hit a particularly good uh, hit. And, and then this terrible tragedy occurred because the, the ball went directly at his younger sister who was playing nearby and she was struck and she died right, right there. And he said that his childhood ended that day. That was, that was that. And he came from a very non-religious family. But this experience for him forced some very big life questions on him very early. And he listed three that he felt that he, he really needed to struggle through and answer after that, that horrible accident. So number one was kind of question was, what is this suffering? And is this the way the world is meant to be? Like, is there a purpose or is this pointless? That was the first kind of question. The second, his second question was, does anybody care? Does anybody understand? And his third kind of question, in his words, was, will the wounds be bound up? Will there be joy? And of course, for him, these were not idle questions. He said something to the effect that he, as he wrestled through these things, he, he felt that either the process would destroy him or it would be what allowed him to emerge as a whole and healthy human being. And his journey through those questions eventually you know, led him to the embrace of faith in Jesus. And that faith led him to, to finding what he thought were the three answers to those questions. That number one, no, this, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. That the world is broken. And that suffering is a tragic consequence of that. It should not be. That second, that yes, somebody does care and understand. That Jesus Christ, the central figure in human history, came from God, experienced loss and betrayal and suffering himself as part of his mission of redemption. And third, that yes, the wounds would be bound up. That there will be joy. That what is broken can yet be fixed. That history is move, excuse me, moving toward restoration by God. But to, to come back to something I said when we began this series, it's, it is not enough to simply think that these things are true or to decide that these, this is the correct answer. That's, that's all intellectual. That's just in our heads. Truth, I think, as Jesus expressed it a couple different ways, 
cannot simply be known, but must be lived. And a living, that requires faith. It requires faith no matter who you are, because none of us fully understands ourselves. None of us fully understands the mysteries of the universe, certainly. And so it takes faith to be an atheist just as surely as it takes faith to be a Christian. It's a matter of what you put your faith in. And that's where today's scripture passage enters the picture and makes some important claims about how faith in God, rather than in our own understanding, is vital to becoming a whole and healthy human. So I'll I'll read in a moment from the book of Proverbs, starting at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So if you want a moment to look those up in your own Bibles, uh, you're welcome to do that, and that'll come on the screen uh, shortly. But I'll mention before I, I read it that the book of Proverbs comes from this section of the Bible called the wisdom literature. It's this collection of teachings that were collected and taught uh, over a long period of time in order to help people be wise. And when you read about wisdom in the Bible, wise doesn't mean really knowledgeable. You know, a, wisdom, a person who's wise is not you know, someone who's got the long flowing beard and kind of dispenses cryptic statements at just the right time. You know, wise in the, the biblical understanding is about being able to live skillfully. It's making choices in your life that lead you toward physical health, financial security, positive relationships with others, success in your endeavors. If you can do that, that's demonstrating that you are wise. And the Proverbs offers guidance and principles which in general should lead to a good result. Now, Proverbs are not necessarily promises. They are proverbs in the same way that we use them today. They are sayings that are true and helpful, but they are not guaranteed to lead to a positive result every time. In our broken world, doing the right thing, doing the wise thing, does not always seem to lead to a good result, at least at first. And the other books of the wisdom literature, especially the book of Job, dig into this very deeply. So as we consider that about the Proverbs, let's pull up Proverbs chapter 3, and I'll start reading from verse 1. Here we read, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. May God bless this reading of his word. So much like the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, this section is written as kind of an address to a younger man seeking wisdom. And it teaches that the wisdom being offered is going to improve his life. It says, do not forget my teaching, keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. And the word prosperity here, we think about that word as meaning wealth, but this could be just as well translated as, as harmony or wholeness. And that's the point of wisdom. It's the point of to make you whole as a human being. Have all the important parts of your life working well. And so in this case, it's to prosper maybe means you know, not 
make a quick buck, but more in the sense that, uh, that Mr. Spock would wish you when he says, be, you know, live long and prosper. And it's, it's just a great source of sadness for me as a very nerdy person that my, uh, my ring finger is really, I don't know if I'm missing a tendon or what, but I can't, I can't do the Mr. Spock thing. I, I just have to like hold it like that or something. But that's the, uh, that's the idea. That's the kind of prosper that, that we're talking about, uh, this wholeness, that things would go well for you. How do, we do, how do we prosper as human beings? How do we be whole? And that, that's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, don't you think it's important that people should have some ideas about how this ought to work? Don't you think we should be teaching our kids this specifically? How can you be whole as a human being? How can you prosper? How can you live a good life? And we're in this weird state of crisis in the Western world because we're as wealthy as every, any society's ever been. We have incredible access to knowledge and entertainment through our technology. We have medical capabilities that can relieve more suffering than ever. And yet, you would think that would lead us to being filled with optimism and confidence and thankfulness for all of this. And instead, I think I see a lot more confusion and anxiety and restlessness. Who am I supposed to be? What is my life for? I mean, when you think about your own community or your extended family or your friends, does it seem like we are headed toward greater and greater wholeness as a people? The teacher in Proverbs thinks that he knows what people need to prosper. And first of all, he says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. And this word love here is strongly connected to the concepts of loyalty and commitment. You can't be wishy-washy, in other words, Find a good path. Don't let anything move you off of it. And be true to the people around you and the God who created you. And then the next section is where our truth and trust really enters the picture. When it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. So to prosper requires faith. You have to figure out how you're going to step forward into an uncertain future. And our passage today urges us to have full faith in God, to trust God fully. With all your heart does not mean with your emotions, the way we think of heart. It means with your whole being. In all your ways, submit to him. And there's a, there's a whole sermon that could just go on to that sentence probably, because you remember that number one reason that millennials have given up on church? hypocrisy and moral failure, which is caused by Christians who did not in all their ways submit to him because they did not submit their sexuality or their, their desire for wealth or their pride or their anger or whatever it was. One way of thinking about this passage is to say that you do not achieve wholeness as a human being if you do not give your whole self and life to God. But let's go back to that other phrase here. Lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. What's, what is this one about? Now, I know there are lots and lots of people who have the impression that to be a Christian or to be religious in general, which has become weirder and weirder in our Western world, it must mean turning off your brain to some extent. Like That is absolutely how a lot of non-religious people feel about religious people. They, they must have had to just stop thinking and accept some impossible, unprovable, old-fashioned things about God to, to show up and do the stuff that they do. 
And maybe there are some Christians and Christian groups who are like this, but as far as I can tell, the sincere pursuit of the Christian faith requires a great deal more careful thought than most of the alternatives. I mean, if you study and learn to interpret the incredibly important and complex collection of books called the Bible, that is going to involve a lot of careful thought. If you think about your life and how to live it in a way that lines up with the principles of the Bible and the life of Jesus, instead of just kind of going through the flow of things or, or side, choosing sides in a culture war, that's going to involve a lot of careful thought. There's a reason that science as we know it, that public education systems, that universities were invented and spread in Christian settings, and it's because we are big on careful thought. But we're also supposed to be big on humility. And this, I think, is what the proverb is getting at when it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Because there is no amount of study or careful thought that leads you to having all the answers or knowing everything that you'd like to know for certain. And what we think we know is not as reliable as we'd like. I find out I'm wrong about things on a pretty regular basis as new information comes my way or as some new experience teaches me otherwise. And what I think I know about something, well, that can change based on the last thing I read, the last person I listened to, or just because I'm tired or I had a bad day. And thanks to that ability of self-deception that all people have, I also have to humbly acknowledge that I can easily twist my beliefs. I can change my understanding to justify getting things that I want instead of doing things that are right. right. Would it really be so bad if I didn't acknowledge that what happened was my fault about this? Is it really a problem if a little extra comes my way in a way that nobody notices over here? Lean not on your own understanding makes good sense because it's not hard to see that our own understanding is not the most reliable foundation that we can find. Humility means recognizing our limitations, our weaknesses, and choosing to trust something outside of ourselves, something greater. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So I would say that maybe this isn't the most precisely structured sermon I've ever done, so I'm going to do a little summary before we get to the last part. Where we've been so far, that many people find that they are not seeking, they're not experiencing within the church a place to express doubt and honestly explore some of the hard questions of life, first of all, which is not great. That secondly, that our answers to the big questions of life matter enormously, with John Anderson being a a dramatic example, bad answers to those questions can harm or even destroy people's lives. And next of all, to get answers that help us be whole and, human be and healthy human beings, the Proverbs tell us to trust God with the whole of our lives, not to lean on our own understanding or be wise in our own eyes. And that means that there is a form of wisdom that only comes about through faith. So now here's the last bit. For many people, the only way to faith involves wrestling through some doubt. Faith and doubt are always in tension. Hebrews 11 captures that tension really well with its famous definition of faith, which says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We believe and we trust despite our lack of perfect knowledge about how everything will work out. See, a person with no doubt is also a person with no faith. Without doubt, all you can have is certainty. And certainty, which sounds nice, can actually become very brittle and cruel. 
A person with certainty instead of faith often stops listening, stops learning, stops questioning, and will happily seek to attack and even destroy anyone they clash with because they have to be completely right or their inner world falls apart. And we call, we call that a fanatic. And it just often requires a great deal of arrogance given the mysteries of faith that have always been recognized within the church. Meanwhile, a person with no faith and only doubt becomes just completely paralyzed or powerless. How can you make any decision without trusting yourself a little or anyone else or anything else in order to help you find a good way through life? But here's... Here's the thing about doubt. As I go through what the Bible says about doubt and all the places it popped up, I'm not sure the word means quite what we think it means. Because when the Bible talks about doubt, it doesn't seem to me that it is talking about wondering or having unanswered questions or not being fully satisfied with some of your answers or just not being certain about certain things. Like, that's often what we talk about as doubt, at least intellectual doubt. But when the Bible talks about doubt, those aren't really the things it's addressing. I think it's the kind of doubt that people in the survey, though, that said, wish they could explore at church but find that they can't. But what the Bible says when it mentions doubt is a bit different. Jesus spoke about faith and doubt a number of times. When Peter risks stepping out of a boat onto stormy waters to meet Jesus there, and that actually worked briefly, a step of faith, but then doubt crept in and he began to sink below the waves until Jesus caught him and asked him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? But by doubt, Jesus doesn't mean the absence of faith. He doesn't mean a lack of intellectual certainty. He just means just a weakness of faith. Your faith wasn't quite as strong as it needed to be for that. And this is true again when Jesus later promised his disciples that they could do miracles even greater than the ones they had seen him do. If you have faith and do not doubt, Jesus says. And it's not that there's some level of perfect faith that turns you into an unstoppable Christian superhero. It's that there are times when we need to decisively step out in faith, just decide to go all in on trusting God instead of holding back. Nobody in the Bible gets that right every time. And the disciple Thomas is, of course, you know, we call him Doubting Thomas, like it was a bad thing. But, you know, Thomas wouldn't believe that Jesus had been raised until he could physically touch Jesus' scars. And Jesus did not get mad about that. He came to Thomas and let him do exactly that. And then he said, blessed are you for believing now that you've seen. And how much more for those who don't get the chance that you just got but will believe. Other disciples had doubts when they met the risen Christ after Easter at first. You know, some worshipped him immediately, others kind of held back, they weren't quite ready. And Jesus didn't condemn their caution. In the little book of Jude near the end of the Bible, it instructs Christians to be merciful to those who doubt. But there is, so there is a prosperity though, there is a wholeness that comes when faith wins out over doubt. This lets you thrive even when life throws hard things your way. And the book of James sums this up pretty well. When it says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. And again, doubt in this passage doesn't mean you wonder about certain things, or you still don't feel like you have all the answers. I believe it's talking about a person who's, they're still hedging their bets, right? They're not fully committed to following Jesus and his example, which is a thing you can do without having every single answer to every single question you might have. And so to to try and sum that up, doubt doesn't mean sometimes questioning or continuing to wonder about things or even going through a time of spiritual darkness in your life as many famous believers have. Doubt has to do with refusing to do what Proverbs 3 says when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's trying to be wise in your own eyes because you don't think God is where all the truth you need can be found or because you don't trust that God's desire really is for you to prosper. And that's the doubt that goes right back to Genesis 1 when the serpent says, you know, did God really say, you know, Is God really going to give you what you want? Is God really going to, is his way really going to make you happy? Or shouldn't you just take matters into your own hands? That's, That's the doubt. Can I really trust God? Am I willing to decide that I will in the absence of perfect information, which is always? (laughs) Hebrews 11, 6 puts it this way. And it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, Because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So as we wrap up our focus on truth and trust, we're ending on the question of where you will look for truth and who you will trust. Will you look to your own understanding or will you look beyond yourself? Should you put your faith in your own wisdom or should you seek it from God? The wisdom that will help you prosper to be a healthy and whole human being is something that, has, you know, that God wants to give us. That's why it's a big topic in the Bible. It's why the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church to encourage believers to strengthen their faith, to help them understand the scriptures. How then shall we live? And this, along with many Proverbs, is not the easiest passage to like give two or three big action steps to take or like a five-point plan to be a better Christian that rolls out of that. But let me get as practical as I can with, I think, maybe two things that you could wrestle with if you want to have wisdom and prosper. And the first of those two is basically don't be lazy about answering the big questions of life. Remember John Anderson's three, three questions about life? What's going on with suffering? Does anybody care or understand? Will will the wounds be bound up? Will there be joy? We shouldn't wait on seeking answers to those or other questions that people might have. I mean, it's never too late to consider whatever your biggest questions are, but if you wait to to the way the end of your life, or if you wait until tragedy strikes you, then you will miss the ways that those answers could have shaped that life and prepared you for that moment. And the church should be a safe and welcoming place for those seeking and even doubting. Because faith often lies on the other side of doubt. I ran into a prayer uh, this week from a a medieval French theologian named Peter Abelard. And it went like this. And I 
thought it was just a neat way of expressing things. And his prayer was, in the spirit of doubt, we approach inquiry. And by inquiry, we find out the truth. As he who was the truth said, seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. That was one, to not be lazy about the big questions or about seeking wisdom. A second thing that I would offer as a, a response to this is to take those instructions very seriously, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. See, I was serious about the need for the church to reclaim and teach self-examination and repentance. Where is the hypocrisy in your life? Maybe in most of your ways you submit to him, but is it really all? I mean, what do you hold back? Because leaning on your own understanding, you don't think God should get the final say over that particular part of you. That's the doubt we need to get rid of. Not wondering or questioning, but refusing to fully trust. Holding back part of who we are from God because we don't think that we'll like what he'll do with it. And that's... That is the doubt that poisons faith. That is the doubt that holds us back from being healthy and whole as we could be. And I'm not going to stand and try to give a lot of examples of all the things that that could be or guess what each person's doubt might be, but God knows exactly what it is, even if you haven't put your finger on it. And so as our response to what God has revealed through his word, let's, let's just come to prayer for a moment together. Almighty ever-present and all-knowing God. Help us to lean not on our own understanding, which we know often fails us. Instead, help us to see and recognize the love, the glory of our Creator, and to desire you, to know you and walk in your ways. I pray for those with questions, with uncertainty or hang-ups when it comes to believing in you or figuring out what is best for their lives. Reward their struggle and help them to find their way to the truth. I pray also for those who have chosen to be your people, but who have not submitted in all of their ways. And that, at least at certain times, is every Jesus follower here. Help us with our doubt. Help us to believe that you fully love us, that you desire that we would be whole, that we would prosper, so that we would live in gratitude and trust that the best way that the best choice is always trust in you rather than in our own understanding. Lead us to being healthy and whole human beings like your son. In the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.